All right, everyone. Sorry for that delay, but we are here and we are live and we are ready for the 2020 Advocacy Bootcamp at the ACB Virtual Conference and Convention. Thanks for joining us. Like Clark said, thanks for your patience, but it just means you're waiting for something super awesome. And we're excited to talk about advocacy, something that we're both passionate about. So thanks for joining us. And, and before we start, discuss here this evening. Advocacy works on uncertain timelines. So that was lesson one for the evening. Love it. Perfect. And I'm Clark Rockfall, ACB's Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs. I'm Claire Stanley. I'm ACB's Advocacy and Outreach Specialist. And thank you to everyone. We hope it's worth the wait, but for those listening and participating over Zoom, as well as ACB Radio and those out uh, watching and listening over Facebook Live. But before we get too far into this, we'd like to ask Janet Dickelman, to please share the continuing education code. All right, well, we will get Janet back here in a second to share that code. The agenda for this evening, we're gonna have a discussion about what is advocacy and how do we advocate? Um, and once we go through that, Claire will have a few ACB members sharing their personal advocacy stories. Really excited. And Clark, it's Janet, I'm here with the code now. Such as advocacy in voting, in education, employment, um, the whole kind of gamut, transportation. So a lot of the big issues that we talk about here at ACB. And then we'll have, of course, Q&A, as well as some interactive portion towards the end with some variety of advocacy topics. And just an overcap, getting folks to put their thinking caps on and brainstorm and share ways to advocate on particular topics and issues. And I do have the code. Oh, we're going to take a pause. Sorry, the code is, for those of you doing continuing education, the code is D19F as in Frank 6. All right. Thank you, Janet. And just so you don't think that we're the only ones here that care about advocacy, we actually have a a message from a special guest who wanted to speak to all of ACB and those attending the boot camp here this evening. So Rick, can we play that special message to our audience? Hello, I'm Senator Dianne Feinstein. For decades, your organization has been on the forefront of advocacy for the visually impaired. From education to the workplace and social security reform, you have pushed for the consideration and inclusion of visually impaired and blind Americans at all levels. Thanks in part to that work, Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in 1990, protecting those with vision loss from discrimination. And you've worked to make all children have access to a quality education that they deserve by ensuring blind children have the tools and the instruction that they need. I think it's very clear that your track record for that advocacy is really essential to the mission. That's especially important as we approach November, which is a very special election. Voting is so fundamental to democracy, and I hope everyone votes. It is very important to hear from this constituency loud and clear. So keep up the good work, keep fighting to keep the needs of the visually impaired before all of us. We must respond. Thank you very much. 
Great. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, I'm I, I'm a little biased to say I'm from California, so that's exciting to have Senator Dianne Feinstein from the great, my great home state of California. So, Yes, thank you so much to Senator Feinstein and her staff for sharing that message with us, as well as to our uh, communications intern, Anthony Corona, mm -hmm. and Blind Pride International for helping make that introduction and make that video happen. Yeah. So Claire, as we get started here, uh, what is advocacy? That is a really big question. What is advocacy? Um, tonight we're going to talk a little bit about what advocacy is, kind of some of the different ways you do it, um, what it looks like. So kind of starting from a 30,000 foot view of more like theoretical topics of what advocacy is. And then we're going to go down to a smaller idea of what it looks like through our own US government system. So big theory to concrete US examples. Yeah, so in general, advocacy is when we use, for, use our voices um, to try to seek for, to solve a need or a concern. Basically, we're identifying a problem, we're letting the world know about that problem, and working collaboratively to find solutions. Um, so here at ACB, I mean, heck, we've already had a transportation forum, an uh, audio description project conference, as well as many other panels uh, and all of these panels touch on the advocacy work of ACB members, our affiliates, committees, and task forces. And that's just one crucial step. First, we need to become educated on the issue. Mm -hmm. So only you are the expert in you. You know your problems. Uh, you know what's working for you in the world, whether that's with education, employment, transportation, voting, well, All of the above. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whatever it may be. And many more topics. You know, no one from the outside can tell you what works for you and what does not. So as soon as you can identify a problem, then it really becomes a matter of educating yourself on what's out there for possible solutions. And there are many ways to do that. So for example, with voting, um, just this week, American Council of the Blind launched acb.org slash voting. And that's a great tool and resource to help people become educated on uh, federal voting laws, as well as other resources for state and local voting issues and matters. So if you are someone that lives in a state that has an inaccessible voting method, learning more about what the laws are, the possible solutions to help address that issue, uh, that's really a big step towards the initial part of the advocacy process. Exactly. And there's so many different facets of learning. Obviously, you can do uh, just your textbook education, you know, go online, read materials, articles, books, all kinds of stuff. Like Clark said, start with our, our toolkit, our voting toolkit for as an example for voting. Um, but you can also be educated in other ways, meet people, which is going to lead mm -hmm. into our next topic we talk about. Um, but, you know, interacting with people, getting experience and getting your, your feet wet, so to speak, that's all part of the education process. Exactly. So, and as Claire mentioned, networking is critical in the advocacy process. Guess what? Chances are, if you have an issue or a problem, you're not alone. You know, no one's an island. It's just, you know, specifically what your issue is, but I'm sure the more people you speak with, the more ACB community events or committee and task force meetings you'll attend, you realize you're not the only one trying to address the same issue. Maybe it impacts other people differently. Maybe they have a different perspective on the issue than you do, but it's something that you can all share and learn from one another and work towards a common solution. 
So for example, if you're a student and you're experiencing an inaccessible you know, e-learning, distant learning platform, as everyone has ha had to shift here with COVID-19, or your, your school or university is making plans for the fall, it, chances are that platform isn't only used by your school or your one classroom. There may be other students at, around the country, other schools, other universities who are facing the same problems with that same system. And if we can identify one another and share our issues and our concerns, we could work collaboratively together to try to identify a common solution. Networking is also a really important tool to have in your toolkit as building kind of a uh, capital I was in a meeting the other day and they used that term capital of people that you know so that when you're advocating for an issue, if one time you met somebody who happens to, ha happens to have connections, let's say, in the transportation world and we're dealing with an issue that's related to transportation because we've networked and we've built up that capital of knowing people, then I can say, hey, Clark, we're talking about transportation. I met this one person this one time at a meeting. We've built up a relationship. I feel comfortable calling him or her now. And that's part of networking. It's building that um, capital and that, that buildup of new people you know who you can go to in the future. That is so true, Claire. And that's not only something that we can do in person. Uh, again, we can do that over virtual events. Definitely learning that these days. Yep. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. But as well as social media, whether it's a Facebook group, LinkedIn pages, uh, it's, it's getting easier and easier to try to identify those, those subject matter experts, uh, not only in the broader community, but even within our ACB family as well. And just look at all the, the 108 breakout sessions that have happened this week and there are still several left to go. Uh, just think about the folks who have hosted those events. I, those are folks within our ACB community and our ACB family that we can turn to and that we can get in touch with if we're facing an issue that's related to something that they presented on. So how lucky are we that we already have this built-in ACB family network to draw from. We are family. I won't start singing, I promise. <laughs> no, she'll just have that song stuck in her head exactly. until we come up with a new song. <laughs> so think about that too, when you're going to, uh, for everyone out there, if you have questions along the way, please email them to questions at acb.org. And you know what? Extra credit if you can throw in a song lyric to get something stuck in Claire's head. Thanks, Clark. But yes, please, as we're talking, send any questions in, and we'd be happy to answer them at the end. All right. So we're, we're getting educated on the issue that we want or want or need to advocate for. We're building our network. Now it's a matter of communicating. How do we collectively raise our voices um, to make those who aren't facing the same issue understand that this is a problem? And not only is it a problem, and we're not whining or complaining about it, but we're bringing this to your attention. And guess what? We have solutions as well. Yes. And I just want to stress again the power of communication. That's the word we're emphasizing right now. Um, it's making me think about our public public relations steering committee mm -hmm. here at ACB. We have 21 different forms of outreach through ACB, whether it be Twitter or our website or things like that. And that's a form of communication. It's getting our issues out there to the people so they know what we're doing and what we're advocating for. So communication is huge. And like Clark was saying, you can do it through so many different mediums. And just a few of those that we use here at ACB, of course, the ACB Advocacy Update podcast, subscribe yesterday or today or tomorrow. Uh, 
that's a, a channel that we use to communicate the advocacy work that the national office is doing. We also have the dots and dashes email newsletter, the Washington Connection phone line, Facebook Live, ACB radio, community events, uh, social media more broadly. And many of these channels are open and available for individuals, affiliates to use as well. Exactly. So. But there are also ways to communicate outside of ACB. There is a whole world outside of ACB. What? Uh, I know. This week, that's hard to believe yes. that the world is still spinning. Uh, so how do we communicate outside of ACB? So obviously, social media is still a big part of everyone's mm -hmm. lives. But there's also the general media. So whether that's TV, radio, uh, print media, magazines, newspapers, still very effective channels of communication. And many of those, the best way to access them is locally, you know, as you're building your local, um, in some cases, national networks, as you're advocating on issues. Like Claire said, you may meet someone and they could be a useful ally later on. Sources in the media uh, often fit that mold. You know, they might not be able to help you on what you're working on right now, but they may have a keen interest on an issue that you may be working on further down the road. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so another form, media is a great example of way to communicate um, and build relationships, but another way to build relationships and communicate with the outside world is through building relationships with corporations or other entities. Um, that's something that we really pride ourselves on here at ACB, as you guys have seen with our sponsors over the last several days of convention. We have a great relationship with groups like Apple and Google and um, Vispero, et cetera, et cetera. And those are really important. Don't take, you know, don't just push those off. Those are huge. You can really help to move things forward forward when you have those corporate relationships. And some of those corporate relationships are built out of uh, items that Claire will address uh, here in our next segment, you know, regulation, legislation. But the, the relationships have really grown much beyond that. So at Apple, for example, launching Apple TV Plus with nine languages of audio description and 40 languages of closed captioning. You know, that's the sort of thing that's built out of a you know, common trust and collaboration between ACB and a corporation. Or for example, Verizon and Verizon Media working with Getty Images to launch the Disability Collection through collaboration with ACB and the National Disability Leadership Alliance so that we can have accurate representation of people with disabilities in the media. Exactly. And collaboration isn't only with, with corporations or basically people that we need things from, right? Um, we always wanna find allies in our advocacy efforts as well. And that's part of the growing our network, yep. um, but it's also finding folks with common interests. So within your state, of course, we have our ACB chapters and our state affiliates, but there are also other disability organizations. Here at the ACB National Office, we work closely with organizations such as the National Disability Rights Network, which is the trade association for the network of protection and advocacy agencies all throughout the country, one in every state and territory, yep. as well as the National Council on Independent Living. And there are many independent living centers or centers for independent living SILs located throughout the country. And they advocate very passionately on disability rights issues. Yeah. 
Um, this is, I'm just going to do a plug for one of the sessions that happened yesterday, but in the uh, transportation forum that our EAC and transportation committees put on beautifully, um, shout out to Sheila and Ron and Becky, um, they had one of the sessions was on coalition building, um, and they came up with a beautiful acronym, CREATOR, C-R-E-A-T-E-R. -E I'm not going to tell you all the letters, um, but I, I'm putting that as a plug to go in and listen, and they gave some really great um, ideas on how to uh, build coalitions with other organizations so that you can be more effective and have more weight behind you. So, And if you missed that session, no worries. It'll be archived as a podcast on ACB radio under the ACB conference and convention podcast feed. So we're working to upload all the sessions there so that everyone can access them if you weren't able to participate in them live. Uh, predominantly what we do here at the National Office, Claire, is collaborating and advocating with the federal government. Yeah, we're really fortunate. We're based in Alexandria, Virginia, which is just a hop and a skip away from the nation's capital. And so we have the opportunity to work with all three branches of the government on a regular basis to advocate for the rights of those of us who are blind or visually impaired. So we're gonna do a quick little run through. We called it earlier the schoolhouse rock lesson of the three branches of the government. And we're gonna talk about the pros and cons of using those to advocate for our rights. Um, so I know I can't hear you guys, but I'm going to pretend I can hear you guys. What are the three branches of the U.S. government? That's right. The executive, judicial, and legislative. <laughs> Yay, everybody. <laughs> See, I could hear you. Yeah. Five gold stars for <laughs> the right. audience participation. Um, so I'm going to go through these quickly. I know you guys know them, but we always just want to <laughs> emphasize them uh, because they're important. So first, we've got the executive branch. Um, so how can you use the executive branch to advocate? Um, well, the executive branch, most of us think, is the president, which of course it is. But the president has his or her cabinet, putting in her, because that's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> um, and the president has uh, his or her cabinet, which then oversee numerous different federal agencies. We've got the Federal Communications Commission. Mm -hmm. Clark can talk about that. We do a lot of work there. We've got Department of Justice. We've got Department of Transportation. And so all of these different agencies allow us to go and advocate for issues. And ACB on a very regular basis is interacting with all those agencies. So that's an important thing to know that these agencies have the responsibility to promulgate regulations on the issues they deal with. So we as advocates want to interact with them on a regular basis. So then when they're creating regulations or working on projects, we can put our two cents in and make sure that we are advocating for our rights. So we're talking about advocacy through the three branches of the federal government. So the executive branch, legislative and judicial branch. And Claire was doing a dive into what comprises the executive branch, obviously the executive office of the White House, but also all of the cabinet agencies, whether it's transportation, health, human services, um, Department of Commerce, Department of Justice. I should have made you memorize all of them and go through them. You should have. Okay. But a little Next late time. for that now, Claire. I'm sorry. We'll have to wait for another break. <laughs> uh, but also the independent federal agencies like the Federal Communications Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, and things like that. So Congress passes a bill. The president signs it. Then basically Congress and the president say, hey, agency, you take this. You take yep. this law and you make this happen. So how do they do that, Claire? So 
it's a very long process, but basically the way the law is written or the, the way the process goes, I should say, these federal agencies have the responsibility to promulgate regulations. And I like to say that because I think promulgate is a really fun word, um, but it's basically their responsibility and they have a lot of leeway. Um, there was a Supreme Court case called Chevron. So we could call it Chevron deference. And it basically means that these agencies, as long as they're working within the realm they're supposed to, have pretty big leeway in creating uh, regulations that fall under that law. Um, so for instance, the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in 1990, went in, into effect in 92, but it was a really great law, but we needed regulations to get more into the nitty gritty, we'll call it, of how the law worked. And so Department of Justice was then tasked with the responsibility to write all the regulations for the Code of the Federal Regulations or the CFR. And so DOJ went at it and worked on it for many years, developing the regs that we now apply every day as we implement the Americans with Disabilities Act. So some of the weaknesses to uh, the executive branch, you have to stay in your in your lane. So sometimes we want to do make changes, but sometimes the executive branch can only go so far. So lots of strengths, but also weaknesses there. Um, so that's the that's the executive branch in, in a nutshell. We're not going to spend all day. I could talk days and days about this, but we're going to jump into the next one because we have a lot more to talk about. So we're next going to jump into the judicial branch. Yeah, and, and as we do that, just let everyone know that we still have audio, but our folks are working to bring up the video again. Uh, but don't worry, that doesn't impact the over 400 people listening in on ACB radio. Awesome. And that just means you don't have to look at us. <laughs> so Clark, what's the judicial branch? And we're back on video. Hello, everybody. <laughs> so what was that question? We like? should have switched chairs and the, just to throw people off. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're now talking about the judicial branch, the next branch of the, the judicial government. branch, the courts. Yes. So everything from SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States. Yep. Uh, down through the courts of appeals, circuit court, district courts. And uh, the courts are a means of last resort for in most cases for us here at ACB. You know, we like to, we, we like to educate and advocate uh, directly with the, I mean, I guess I'll say the, the offending party, right? Um, but not necessarily in offending because they intend to, but it's where we have, we've identified a problem. So that could be a, a school transportation system, a state government, a corporation, anything like that. So usually we like to reach out with them, reach out to them, identify the need of a specific individual or individuals and try to work with them directly. If that doesn't work, you know, we may send a, uh, a demand letter, which that is part of the regulatory process uh, created through the Americans with Disabilities Indeed. Act, right, Claire? Yeah. However, that's not always effective either. Um, and if it's something that needs immediate attention, like trying to make accessible remote absentee voting during COVID-19, then we may have to proceed to litigation, filing, working with attorneys, getting plaintiffs and witnesses, and filing a lawsuit in the courts. 
And like, like everything, there are strengths and weaknesses to using the judicial branch. Um, like uh, Clark was just saying, we try to use it as, you know, the last step possible. Why the weaknesses to it? First of all, it can take a lot of time and a lot of money. Also, you know, it's, it has pretty, you know, it has the force of law, literally the force mm -hmm. of law, which is a great thing, but you know, it takes a lot to get there, but that's, that is one of the pros that it can have a final decision. However, both a strength and a weakness is that we have the appellate process in the U S government. So you can keep on moving up until you get to the Supreme court, of course. Um, another weakness is that unfortunately when it comes to disability rights cases, the Supreme court has not always been favorable to our community. So something we always want to keep in mind. So there are instances where the courts are very favorable. Uh, so ACB member from California, Guillermo Robles. That's right. He brought a suit against Domino's Pizza for having an inaccessible website. He was not afforded fair and equal access, um, just like all other patrons, and he lost. But then he appealed that case. And that's a problem with legal precedent. It also cuts both ways. Yep. You know, you can set a good precedent, you can set a bad precedent. He was able to appeal his case and then won on appeal and the Supreme Court sent the case back down, you know, basically declined to hear the challenge by Domino's. So the lower court ruling stood and it's now working through that process. But there are other cases where, for example, accessible currency, which we still hear from our members about, and we are still fighting. ACB won in the federal courts in 2002, 18 years ago. And in September, we're going to go to the federal courts again for the third time. Maybe the but third don't time you worry. is a charm. We're going to keep going. <laughs> we're going to go as long as we need to. Yep. But sometimes advocacy can be really hard and take a long time. One, before we move into the third branch, I just want to emphasize one huge case in the disability ADA world that came from the Supreme Court that has been amazing is Olmstead, the LC, which has really opened up the door for integrated community living for people with disabilities. So, you know, sometimes the courts don't rule in our favor, but sometimes they make huge landmark decisions that have positive impacts. So there are definitely some some awesome pros of using the judicial system. Yes. And it's not all bad. Don't get me no, wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there have been several court settlements here in the past few months that have made voting more accessible. And these have been great interim measures on settlements of preliminary injunction where both the states and disability rights organizations agree to a short-term settlement to provide accessible voting for the primaries. And in some cases, again, for the general election, um, just so we can have an accessible method in place. And then the lawsuit will proceed along regular course following the elections. So, and those are certainly great measures that bring added accessibility to people when they need them. Great. So we talked about the executive, then we talked about the judicial. I'm doing, putting my fingers up in the air. The third one is the legislative branch of the government, the third and final branch. Um, this is something that I hope many of you guys um, are familiar with and it's near and dear to our heart because every year when we do our leadership conference in February, we bring you guys up to the hill and we send you to talk to your representatives about legislation that will impact our community. So it's a big thing for us. And the, the legislative branch is Congress. 
it's the House, it's the Senate, it's the 100 senators, two for each state, it's the 435 uh, elected representatives. In our bicameral system, as we call it, House yep. and Senate, yep. Apportioned by population throughout the states. And because representatives are apportioned by population, it is so important for everyone to take part in the 2020 census that is still ongoing. You can do so by visiting 2020census.gov and completing the very accessible form there, or you can call them. And I hesitate to give out the phone number because I don't have it memorized, but it is on the 2020census.gov website. So Claire, how do we work with Congress? Well, that's the great thing about Congress. It's literally an open door system in the United States. You know, we are a republic where people have the right to contact their Congress members. So literally you can pick up the phone, you can open your email and type the email out and talk to your Congress members about what's going on. Um, but Congress keeps their feelers out for issues that are going on. Things are brought to their attention. Then Congress members, both in the House and the Senate have the right to draft up laws. If it's drafted in one house, it has to then make it over to the other side and be approved on both sides. But before that happens, they go through many, many a committee process. There are different committees that work on different issues where literally both sides, Republican and Democrats talk about it. Oh, a lot back and forth, try to smooth out ideas, compromise, lots of compromise because we don't always agree, but they hash it out till we can get a copy on both the House and Senate that are identical and are passed by both sides. And if that happens, it goes up to the executive branch and the president signs it. So that's very much so in a nutshell what the legislative branch looks like. And some major laws passed by Congress includes the Americans with Disabilities Act passed 30 years ago. In just a few weeks? Uh, yeah, yeah, 30 years ago this month in 1990, the Help America Vote Act passed in 2002, something near and dear to ACB's heart, the 21st Century Communications Video Accessibility Act, which is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. It was passed in 2010. Um, what else? So Claire? many others. Yeah. The Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, uh, the Voting Rights Act of mm -hmm. 1965. So the a Workforce lot. Innovation and Opportunity Act passed in 2014. So a lot going on. So as we talk about our imperatives from 2020, and then the ones that we'll talk about in 2021, those are things that could become laws. Um, so it's pretty exciting when you think about it, that we can play that direct uh, role in getting laws passed that'll impact the lives of Americans for generations to come. And there are still pieces of legislation out there that ACB and our members are working on. Uh, so whether that's the Cogswell-Macy Act, which has been introduced in every Congress uh, since 2013, and this year in the House, it's H.R. 4129. Um, yeah. Geez, what else? Uh, the provisions that we are seeking to get into the Surface Transportation Act reauthorization, or the FAST Act, because there are some bills that have to be reauthorized every five or so years, um, also including the National Defense Authorization Act, which has provisions that impact employment opportunities, for people who are blind and visually impaired, as mm -hmm. well as uh, research and development funding for eye conditions. 
Exactly. So we could go on all day about the different laws, but I think we'll stop there because we have a great panel of ACB members who are going to talk about their own experiences using advocacy. And I won't talk for them because they'll share their own stories, but we just want to point out that they use all kinds of advocacy, whether it be through the judicial branch, whether it be personal advocacy, whether it be going through a corporation, media, you name it, all different venues. So the, the point is that people can advocate in all different kinds of ways. And one, one is not right or wrong. They're all just different variations depending on the situation. And so with that, we're going to jump into our panel. Well, before we jump into our panel, Claire, let's see if Janet has any questions from questions at acb.org. We can take a few of those as our panelists get set. Okay. I do have a couple of questions. Yes. Um, Mary from Colorado wants to Do we have any questions, know. Janet? Please. Yes. Can you hear me? Why am I not? All the audio now unmuted. Okay. Sorry, my okay. computer. I'm going to take that as a no. Um, we must be but, doing a really good yeah. job. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I I do okay. have some questions. Um, are I'm sorry we ready for, some... for our panelists? Yeah. Claire, Janet does have questions. Claire. I just want to check. Okay. okay. Claire, did you hear me? <laughs> okay. We don't have audio. Anymore, we apologize. So moment, oh. Okay. <laughs> I do have a couple of questions, um, but I don't know if you can hear me or not. Now yeah, we can. Thank you right. so much. Thank you. I, I kept saying hello. Hello. Uh, Mary from Colorado wants to know about employment discrimination and what ACB is doing as a advocacy agency to help with employment discrimination because of the high unemployment rate for people who are blind and visually impaired. Yeah, so we're always working on different employment issues. Um, it comes in many shapes and forms and colors and sizes. Um, Clark actually sits on a committee through a, a coalition of advocacy groups that we're part of. So an example of coalition building mm -hmm. that deal with employment issues. So we're constantly keeping a, a finger on the pulse of those issues. We have people contact us directly. One of our panelists, for instance, is gonna talk about her employment issue um, and the advocacy that we're doing in that space. So you name it, we're always keeping an eye on those issues. And again, it's an example of how no one size fits all for advocacy that depending on the issue, we're kind of approaching it from different angles. So if Mary has a particular question or issue with employment discrimination, she should reach out to you guys. Please. Absolutely. And, All right. Very good. And in the space of employment advocacy, many of the situations are one-off instances. They're dealing with specific accommodations for an individual employee or a specific employer. So the Americans with Disabilities Act is pretty strong on employment discrimination for people with disabilities. So if you're having an issue, please reach out to Claire and me at advocacy at ac.org. Great. And then I have one other question from Brooke, and she wants to know what the executive committee, uh, executive needs to do to veto a law that is set up by the legislative branch. Ooh, we're really getting into some. Yes. Civics lessons. I love it. And that's my last question for now. So I'm going to unmute <laughs> or mute. Thank you, Janet. Maybe. Um, so I think the question was what the executive branch does. Mm -hmm. So the president always has the right to veto a bill, a law, but then Congress has the right to come back and it, is it three fourths? I believe it's two thirds. Two thirds fractions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was told there'd be no math. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so the president has the right to veto the bill. He or she can say, nope, I'm not going to sign this. But then Congress can come back and say, 
nope, we have the number. Um, we, we will double check on the two thirds number and they can override his or her veto. So it's, I'm sure you guys have heard the terms checks and balances. A lot of what we see in the US constitution is based on checks and balances. So no one branch of the government has too much authority and we can keep, keep a check on power. Three co-equal branches. Yeah. Cool, well, let's jump into our panel. Um, so I want to check our first panelists tonight. Well, just again, the, uh, just to, to kind of recap, these panelists are gonna talk about their own issues that they've experienced, their own personal experiences, either in their own life or in the work they do or in their state that they're a part of. So different forms of advocacy and they're all different. And the kind of takeaway we hope you guys get is that there is no one perfect answer. Everybody deals with it differently. Some, th some things might happen overnight, more often than not, they extend over an amount of time, um, but we all do what we can to advocate. Um, we have four panelists. We'll let them talk for a few minutes. Then we're gonna open up the floor for questions. So as they talk, feel free to jot down questions and send them those out again to questions at advocate questions <laughs> at acb.org. See, I just have advocacy Old on my mind. Old habits die hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're gonna jump in. Uh, Jim Kraut, did you make it on? You are supposed to be our first panelist. I am ready. Awesome, yes, you have the floor. My name is Jim Crott. I'm the pres immediate past president of the Florida Council of the Blind, chair of its access committee, and a member of the board of directors of the American Council of the Blind. Throughout my remarks, I would like to invite you to keep in mind my fundamentals to advocacy, education, relationships, team building, positive attitude, determination, passion, creativity, revolving strategies, persistence, perseverance, and repetition. Two years ago, I met with the vendor of an accessible software program for absentee vote by mail that allows voters to vote at home privately and independently using their computer with its screen reader or other access technology and then mail their marked ballots back to their election officials. Thereafter, we met with the director of the state's division of elections only to learn that there was no pending application for certification. It quickly became clear that we would often be used as a ping pong ball in the middle of an ongoing blame game. But the director insisted she was very interested that she would expedite certification and even consider using HAVA funds for the acquisition and launch of the vote by mail program. In fact, that has never happened. Back to the drawing board. We pre pressured the vendor to immediately file its application. Several iterations later, I learned that the division had pulled its certification engineer off the project and all had to be restarted. More delays. We were persistent with phone calls and emails, most of which were never answered. Finally, out of frustration and pressure, we used a threat of a DOJ complaint, which I had first gotten permission to file. This severe tactic was necessary in order to get a dialogue restarted with the division, but never use an idle threat. You must always be prepared to follow through if your bluff is called. We were, 
but it was absurd that we had to resort to that extreme of a tactic in the first place. As you will see, though, that was only the beginning. We kept up a constant phone vigil, balancing against becoming an annoying nuisance, but remembering the squeaky wheel gets the oil. (laughs) On May 20th of this year, the Certification Bureau finally advanced its report to the Division Director and Secretary of State for signature, where it again stalled and still sits today. As the primary and general elections were rapidly approaching, we kept inquiring about movement, but calls were again not answered. We continually had to develop new strategies, like asking our local chapters to contact their supervisors to push acquisition of the accessible vote-by-mail software. We later discovered, though, that many of these chapters lacked follow-through, which was a necessary part of the process. Attack your issue on multiple fronts and be flexible and creative as you go forward. The DOJ complaint pushing the county supervisors, maintaining a dialogue with the state, and eventually, because we were running out of time, filing suit. The delays had pushed us up against a wall. Thus, we contacted a disability rights lawyer and quickly ascertained a need to retain counsel and institute litigation. Because this was expensive, we needed a quick, meaningful determination on questions of continuing to wait for final certification or to sue for a mandate to certify and fund with federal CARES money. Federal money was now needed because, with the two-year delay in certification, there was now no time to negotiate with each of our 67 counties. Again, the DOE stopped returning calls. Time was of the essence and urgency compelled unanimous decisions from FCB to proceed and to fund. After choosing the court and the vehicle, the United States District Court in the Northern District of Florida, and ongoing voter rights litigation, our suit to intervene was filed June 2nd. We will go to trial in July. I have worked in a trial support role with witness coordination and helping wherever I can to make it easier for the lawyer. Lesson learned, when you delegate, you have to ensure that your delegation is acted upon and get feedback to confirming responses to your request for help. We selected five named plaintiffs besides FCB. Each one had a track record, an interest, and special circumstances behind their selection. We have played the odds here mandating the importance of our vote-by-mail claims by now leaning on COVID-19 as additional support for vote-by-mail. That's exactly what I mean by flexibility and adapting to changing circumstances as you go. Please, Remember my earlier offered fundamentals in your advocacy efforts, education, relationships, team building, positive attitude, 
determination, passion, creativity, revolving strategies, and perseverance, persistence, and repetition. All of this will work to make your advocacy meaningful and successful. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jim. And we hope you stick around in case anyone has questions here after the, the other panelists present. Claire, what stood out to you about Jim's advocacy on voting in Florida? Well, it sounds to me as he was reading those at the at the end, a lot of the things that we talked about, you know, coalition building and educating, um, networking, all those kinds of things came came up that we talked about. So that's pretty exciting to hear um, that there is, you know, confirmation about what we're talking about. And also it, it seemed to echo the ACB uh, core values as well, flexibility, integrity and honesty, you know, not just using an idle threat but being willy, willing to stand by your word and see something through, as well as collaboration, working with chapters and other people with disabilities who are also impacted by this issue, identifying five witnesses of individuals who have a longstanding track record with voting as well as voting advocacy work. Um, and great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, again, if you have questions for Jim, we're going to move on to our next panelist because we want everybody to talk, but we're leaving time after the four panelists for questions. So jot those down and send them to questions at acb.org. Um, so next we are going to move on to uh, Rebecca Bridges. Are you ready? I am. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you all so much. And you know, Claire and Clark, thank you so much for um, asking me to participate. Um, again, I'm Rebecca Bridges, and some of you might know my husband, just a few of you. Um, that's not who we're here to talk about today, although he, he is a stakeholder in this. Um, I serve on a number of you know, committees and do a lot of things in, in ACB, but um, we're not really here to talk about that either. Um, but what my advocacy situation is um, you know, similar to Jim's in that it is ongoing. It is something that is in progress right now. Um, you know, when I'm sure that a lot of you can relate to as you went through your educational pursuits and, you know, into work life, um, you, uh, many of you experienced, um, you came across barriers and, you know, issues that you had to, you know, to, to deal with and figure out you know, maybe you had to advocate for yourself in, in a variety of ways. Um, what's interesting, though, is becoming a parent and the sort of turning it on its head a little bit. So now I'm no longer advocating for myself um, as a person who is blind. I am advocating for my children or my family in some ways. But then it's weird when it sort of comes back to the blindness again as a parent. So, you know, the... ID, you know, IDEA and ADA, they're pretty clear on, you know, the rights of children with disabilities to, you know, individualized education plans and, and so forth. But where it gets a little bit murky is um, as a parent, uh, when you are advocating and dealing with issues of, you know, in, uh, lack of access for you as the parent to your um, children's education. And so that's really what I'm here to talk about today is, is that experience. And, you know, traditionally, so our son, Tyler, he is 
a rising first grader. Um, and we, you know, he went to preschool like most kids and we were able to do a, you know, we had various techniques that we used to get access to, you know, what kind of artwork is he bringing home and what are the little papers that he draws on and, and writes his name on and things like that. We had different ways of getting access to that, you know, seeing AI, IRA, you know, those sorts of things. Lots of tools in the toolbox, as I'm sure all of you are very resourceful at using as well. Um, going into kindergarten, we leveraged so, a lot of those similar tools, but where we started to run into problems was um, the, the app, the, um, there was an app that, his, that our school district uses um, for the younger kids. And there are a lot of, you know, we access it primarily through the phone or the iPad because that's, you know, it has different, and so within this app are different activities that the kids can do. Um, a lot of it before COVID was, you know, supplemental stuff where they'd post, you know, oh, Tyler, here's a video of him doing this, you know, thing on in class or some pictures of him or maybe you know, there were little activities that he could do, like journaling activities and different things that he would submit over the app. Um, but once COVID started, as I'm sure, you know, that sort of brings out, um, you know, as everybody moved to a distance learning model, um, it presented a lot of problems. So, because all of a sudden we were responsible for overseeing his use of the app. Um, and there were a couple of issues with that. One is, just the inherent nature of the work that a kindergartner does is rather visual. You know, you trace, you unscramble, you know, you trace words and letters, you unscramble sentences, you, you know, so it's very difficult, probably one, to make that content accessible in an app, and two, um, you know, for us as parents to know, like, did he actually do it, or did he just tell me he did it, and then, like, he wants to go play. Um, and, you know, that's not necessarily the, the, uh, the school district's problem, but in addition to that, there is, you know, there were a lot of, there are a lot of buttons in that app that are not labeled. You know, you go through something and it's button, 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 and it's very frustrating. And by the time, you know, you figure it out, you dial up Ira on TeamViewer or something, it's like, oh my goodness, your five-year-old has lost all attention because it takes four times long because his poor parents can't figure out what the heck is going on. Um, secondary to that, so in addition, the the school district made the, the decision um, at when COVID came and, and everybody went home um, to not use devices for any required learning. So any, um, any materials that the students were asked to complete were going to be on paper. And the reason they made that choice is because not all students had access to devices. So to ensure uh, you know, equitable access and that children weren't left behind, they decided, okay, we're gonna create these packets and we're gonna, you can download them and they're PDFs so you can you know, print them and, and use them with your students, you know, with your children. So that's all fine and well. I was able to get access to those documents. Well, the problem is it's like, you know, read this story with your child and then ask these questions. Well, the story was an image. Um, you know, there were lots of, of components, tons of elements to this that were not accessible at all. So um, in terms of what we did, um, you know, as a first step, I decided, well, you know, I remember I called Claire and asked her a few questions about what at rights I had asked, you know, what my rights were as a parent and what it looked like, like, you know, obviously, okay, the teacher can't teach or like your child doesn't have, my child does not have an IEP. 
So I'm not, I don't need like personalized attention from a teacher necessarily. So it does get a little bit murky, like I said, as a parent um, for like what the school is required to do for my child versus for me, et cetera. So we talked that through a little bit. The second thing I did was um, I reached out to my son's teacher and explained okay, these are the issues I'm having both with the app as well as, you know, they, she knew earlier on that the app was an issue you know, during this regular school year when we were all in person. But I reiterated the issues with the app and I specifically called out the issues with the packet and you know, explaining exactly what kind of problems I was having. And I said, do you know who created this content and who can I, you know, who, who can I speak to about maybe trying to ensure that it's more accessible? Um, so I decided to take sort of the bottom-up approach. Um, and so she said, well, let me get you in touch with somebody and see what we can do. So then I get a call from someone, a very nice woman who is a teacher for the visually impaired. And I suspect that um, she was told, hey, help this lady get access to her stuff and, you know, let's deal with it and maybe she'll go away. I don't know what the back conversation was, but obviously it was like, hmm, a TBI is calling me. So I explained to her what is going on and the issues I'm having. And she says, oh, you know, I completely agree. We have to, you know, these, these packets are created by the, you know, this, this department. And, you know, we have not the TBIs, but by this other department of teaching and learning in our district. And she explained to me, like, that she as a TBI struggles um, with these same issues. Uh, for, you know, they have to totally reconvert, you know, convert all the content into various formats. And even with the app, we talked about that a little bit and she said, oh, I have to pull all the content out. And all I could think at that moment was, first of all, I wish I'd gotten her to write that down. <laughs> um, and maybe I will at some point. But secondly, I thought, wow, education really isn't that much different, you know, 30 years later than it was 30 years ago when you know we were all just reading braille and didn't have any electronics so that's sort of sad um a sad state of affairs that the tvi has to do so much extra work even for the students um the blind students so um from there i we both agreed that i wasn't really interested in her brailing the content for me that really wasn't what i needed my goal was to get them to fix the problem and to be a part of the solution and not to put a Band-Aid on it. So she agreed to take it up the flagpole. So concurrently, I contacted my son's principal, um, who has a great reputation in, uh, in the district. And I, I like her and she seems genuine and you know, really seems to care about the students and the people, the families in her community. So I reached out to her to let her um, no, and she she actually around the same time as I was reaching out to her, she reached out to me because my teacher got her in touch with me and said, "Hey, this is an issue." So we um, we corresponded, and she seemed pretty upset, and she seemed to understand what my issues were, and she said, "You know, I'd like to create a, for lack of a better word, task force. I'd like to get some people from the Department of Teaching and Learning who create this stuff, and maybe." our low vision specialist and some other people to get together and have a conversation about these issues because if it's affecting you it's affecting our students and it's affecting you know lots of other stakeholders so i agreed to sit on this with the thought the thought that oh good you know we're gonna maybe be a part of maybe i can help fix it maybe i can help advise and offer some some guidance whatever so we have this meeting and basically it turns out that they're all a bunch of nice people who 
really just, oh, I just don't understand why this company wouldn't make, you know, company X wouldn't want to make their app accessible. It's just the right thing to do. And I'm like, well, it's because you, the county, already bought it. <laughs> like, there's no motivation for them to to do that. And, and they could not understand, you know, they're just dumbfounded that, or they pretended to be, I don't know, like, oh, this is so horrible and appalling. And so at the end of the meeting, basically, they said, you know, well, we have some ideas. Here are the, some things we'd like to try, and we'll get back to you. And so that wasn't my understanding. I think the principal and I had maybe hoped that, you know, the, the dialogue would continue and that I could be a part of the solution. But at the end of the conversation, it was more. And uh, we'll let you know what we decide to do. Um, and so I was a little disappointed by that. And, and that meeting actually happened mid-June and I'm still waiting on the meeting notes. <laughs> mm. um, and I've requested them multiple times and I'm told that someone will send them. I don't know if they're like filtering out any level of accountability or what's going on there. <laughs> um, but in short, I know my time is running. So um, where we are currently is there in that at this point, you know, the future is uncertain. Um, any solution we come up with will probably not help us in the fall, um, like for our immediate term, but I'm, I'm willing to play the long game. And as Jim said, I mean, there's persistence, there's mm -hmm. education, there's relation, you know, coalition and relationship building. So there's still, we are still, we are in the infancy um, of these activities. And essentially what, you know, Eric and I are trying to decide at this point is, you know, how far do we take sort of the, the nice guy approach and the bottoms up approach, you know, being part of a coalition and when do we hit the, like play the new, you know, play the card, right? The, the nuclear option, if you will. And we haven't, we haven't made that choice and, and there's a lot at stake and, and we haven't, you know, we haven't gone there yet. So we're still really in the beginning of our journey. Um, but we're learning a lot and it's, it's just very, it's a very different experience. Um, coming at this from this, the perspective of, of a parent who's trying to get access to, to, you know, to my child's education. So thank you for your time. And I look forward to uh, hearing from the rest of the panelists and taking any questions at the end. Thanks, Rebecca. I, I of course don't like your story and the fact that you guys are dealing with this, <laughs> but I like your story and the fact that it shows that, you know, things evolve and change and there's no one right way and you might take a left here and then a right there and things just kind of slowly evolve. So I think that's just a great realistic example of how we just start to feel our way through through things and see see what comes next. So and I also liked how Rebecca kind of highlighted there at the end the need for persistence. It's one thing to to call a company or to talk with a school district and raise an issue with them. And then they say, okay, thank you, or we'll be in touch. So do we just sit back and wait for them to be in touch? I don't think so. And I don't know Rebecca Bridges as well as others, but something tells me she's not just going to sit back <laughs> and twiddle her thumbs and wait for the, the county to come back to her. I think they'll be hearing from uh, the bridges sooner than later. So thank you again for sharing that story, Rebecca. Great. Um, so our next speaker is going to talk in the transportation space, which I'm always excited about. Um, so with, without further ado, Sheila Styron, are you here? I think so. Yep. Dawn is breaking, it's early morn. The taxi's waiting, he's blowing his horn. I'm riding with my guide dog, cause I can. 
And why am I allowed to ride with my guide dog? It's because of advocacy, all the advocacy that people before me have done and all the advocacy that's left for the rest of us and everyone here at ACB to do. Um, I didn't realize I was only supposed to talk about transportation. So it's going to oh, be please. more of a oh. life story synopsis. Yeah, if you when were I was a little girl, in, Claire will be more than happy. <laughs> Always. When I was a little girl going through uh, elementary school, I had all of my braille books. I had all of my teachers. Everything was there. It was magical. I was mainstreamed in California. And I just thought that's how life was. And everything was great, except for the fact that I didn't know any other blind people. And I didn't have any adult blind role models. And I, I didn't have any ACB. But I learned to read at an early age. And I read all kinds of books about guide dogs. And I knew when I grew up, I was going to get one. I knew I was going to go to college. And uh, when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I remember my um, uh, resource teacher coming up to me and talking to me about canes and trying to put a cane into my hand. And I just said, nope, nope, not interested in that. I'm gonna have a guide dog when I grow up. And the conversation ended with me running away and climbing a tree. <laughs> so, so that was that, I guess I, guess I was sort of advocating for myself. Um, That's right. I was a, a perfectionist. I, I tried really hard to get good grades because I felt less than being blind and without role models. I, I really felt that, you know, that I had to, to try extra hard to make up for the fact that I was blind. So jumping ahead to when I did finally go for that guide dog, the summer between high school and university, I went up the coast to guide dogs for the blind and I got my first guide dog and having a guide dog was perfect for me. I loved having a guide dog and always will. However, as most of us know, when you get a guide dog, you also have to be an advocate. And that sort of fell perfectly into place with the fact that um, I went off to be a music major at UCLA, which was a huge old campus, which was great that I had a guide dog, but um, when I got there, they said, well, you know, you can have the guide dog in the dorm, but you can't have a roommate. Mm. Well, I didn't advocate. I, I just kind of swallowed it, went on, went to the, the music major counselor, took one look at me and she goes, you know, nobody blind has ever made it through this program before. We really don't know what you're doing here. Mm. I said, well, okay. So I put down my head and I thought, you know, I'm just going to have to work really hard. I took a sailing class with a bunch of, um, my friends and we all had to turn our boats upside down and pick them back up and I had to tack back and forth in Marina del Rey in my little Coronado 15 and at the end of the class everybody else got their certificate I didn't get mine he said oh you can't have one you're blind I kind of <gasps> went home with my tail between my legs but don't give up on me quite yet because um, <laughs> I, I did learn to advocate a little while later um you know I I was in the meantime, um, having to, students with disabilities departments weren't really happening very strongly yet. And mm. I had to get my own books, you know, when I was growing up, they handed all those books to me. But now I had to go find my books and I had to uh, learn how to listen because I had to have people read to me and I had to get books recorded on anybody remember cassettes and I had to <laughs> arrange how to take my tests with professors 
because I was a music major, I had to invent these complicated systems for transcribing music into Braille and transcribing the Braille music that I wrote on my Perkins back into print. And then that same roommate who was my um, reader, it was a great relationship, we're still friends. She's a big O&M person in San Francisco now. Um, one, you know, we had a, a music theory teaching assistant for a while who was really mean and he was making fun of a lot of the people who couldn't do ear training and um i i guess i finally decided to start advocating when it was for someone else so uh i got him fired (laughs) (laughs) so that was probably my first big coup as an advocate um and i um did graduate from college magna cum laude and i did it in three years and i was also asked by that same mean music counselor to um, mentor a woman who came in the year after me so fast forward I'm, i'm living my life i'm still not i still don't really know any other blind people i still don't know about acb i I don't know anything. I'm I'm in a bank one day. I'm I'm living with my boyfriend. We're doing music, you know, living the dream, <laughs> living the poor person's dream. <laughs> <laughs> um, I went to the bank one day, and this this really nice, soft-spoken guy. He had a guide dog. Came up to me, and he invited to a meeting. Well, I didn't know if he was from ACB or NFB, but um, he said, you know, would you like to come to a meeting? You know, get to know a lot of other blind people, and and um, and I, I kind of said, well, that sounds really nice, but you know, I'm really fine. I, I, I don't need to do that. You know, I mean, but really, I should have gone. And it's just been a theme of my early life that I didn't have you guys, you know. And so time goes on a little bit. And finally, things kicked into high gear because, uh, well, you know, and, and I have to admit that 1990 went by. This, this is really embarrassing, but I've made up for it, I think. <laughs> didn't even know about the ADA. I, I, I wasn't involved. I didn't know anything. I don't even think I heard about it on the news. I was just like, you know, playing the guitar and the piano and writing songs <laughs> and wishing that things worked better for me and trying to work on it all by myself. So um, I got a letter from GDB and they wanted graduates to come up to Sacramento. I lived in California and Sacramento is the capital. And they wanted us to advocate to keep the state board of guide dogs from sunsetting. Well, this was extremely exciting to me, even though that happened to be a very controversial issue and a lot of guide dogs weren't in favor of it, I found out later. So (laughs) I got on a train, just me and my guide dog and went up to Sacramento and that's where it all began for me. I met a whole bunch of blind people, really cool blind people, lots of them with guide dogs, people from CCB and GDUC. And I really was so excited and I learned about legislation and I learned about meeting with your representatives and I learned about, you know, all of the processes of government where I could make a difference and where I could really change things. And I moved on from there to GDUI and the national office and ACB and one of the highlights of um, my time with GDUI when I was president was I had the privilege of working with a lot of other individuals and a, and a coalition of other service animal partners to change the definition of a service animal mm. through the um, Department of Justice, the disability rights section. And as Claire mentioned earlier, 
it took nine years. We started in 2001 and we finally made that happen in 2009. Well, by this time I was, I was pretty steeped in advocacy and I was doing a lot of advocacy training. I was advocating about the paratransit issues in LA. I was doing driver training. People were calling me up to speak. And I even at this time uh, married somebody who was also blind. So you could see I had come a long way, moved to Kansas City and I got a job at a center for independent living, the whole person. And a few of the highlights from working there and the transportation issues that I advocated on were um, really wide and varied. I was constantly at City Hall and I liked nothing better than to be maybe at a big metropolitan planning organization meeting and walk in and stand up and take my time at the podium and say, how many of you other people came here on a bus today? And <laughs> I found that to be a great attention getter. <laughs> I um, So I, I really worked on um, a lot with um, accessible signals. And there happened mm. to be a gentleman that I worked with at the whole person who's now retired, Patrick Palmer, who has an incident he was involved in. He got this great letter from the Human Rights Commission that sort of put us in a position to leverage our power. And we got the city to agree to all future apps that were put in would need to be accessible and any time they made an upgrade to an existing street corner application that would also have to be accessible and i remember one time we planned this uh i had this uh, mayor's uh oh what do you call it a town hall and it was two mayors back and there were a lot of people there with disabilities really unhappy with some of the uh situations having to do with inaccessibility in our fair city and we put the mayor on the spot so much that right there and then on the spot, and he followed through, he put a million dollars in the budget for apps. Hi. And that was very cool. And so every time I'm standing on a street corner here in Kansas City, I am, you know, and there's an app. And we, we have uh, pretty many of them now. I have to say we did, we did a good job. I am very happy about all the apps mm. we have in our, our city. So as I was doing this um, systems advocacy, I began to become aware that there were a lot of people in my uh, greater metropolitan area who were blind and low vision who really didn't have all the services they need. And we have very little available in, in recreation and outdoor activities. So I decided I was ready for a change. Plus, um, you know, this area is pretty conservative and I was getting a little burned out. <laughs> So um, I was fortunate that the whole person decided to take me up on my offer and they let me, the girl with the music major, I became the, the blindest low vision specialist and I spend half my time advocating for people on an individual basis if they need services, if they need to learn about, you know, how they get rehab services, how they get products, how they get training, how do they learn to use a computer. Um, that's part of my job, you know, and, and in a position like mine, you deal with people who just want to find out something they don't know about. You also deal with people who maybe had a hip surgery last week and woke up blind. And, oh my gosh, you know, you just have to do a lot of listening and I really, really, really try to help these people. But the other part of my job, which is a lot of fun and which really fits how, um, how, 
how I've been thinking and what I'm enjoying doing in my life currently is I get to plan activities because there are so few of them. So I get to do things like teach an exercise class. And it's been really fun because during the pandemic, I mean, I've been doing like the ACB community calls. I just do Zoom, you know. <laughs> um, before the pandemic, we, um, I got a donation of some tandem bikes. So um, had a partnership with Bike Walk KC and we'd take everybody on these tandem bike rides. I uh, do what are called hikniks, which is pretty much what it sounds like. Taking a picnic lunch and hiking and picnicking in the forest. We'd take the TWP bus out to the country and do that. Plan um, uh, trips to Audible theater productions, uh, museums. Um, I have um, advocacy sessions. I have a support group, which now, of course, is conducted on Zoom. We have Tech Talk. We do, you know, a lot of those activities locally that I have a, an event called Out and About with Canines and Canes. And I, I just have to say that I've become really, really enamored with um, trying to fire people up about getting in shape and and maybe hoping that if if they have accessible activities to do we've gone zip lining we've gone downhill skiing up at snow creek i want to get people fired up to to and teach them how to ride the buses and show them that there's so much more that they can do and i'm hoping that you know this will help get them out of their houses and involved with the community and maybe fired up to to try to get a job and that's how i see my path moving forward i i really want to do a lot more um, influencing and advocating in the area of outdoor exercise and accessible exercise. And I know there's a lot of room to do that in ACB. And I, I just have to say that I'm so grateful to um, Kim Charlson for bringing me onto the advocacy committee and Ron Brooks for bringing me um, into transportation and you guys for giving me a chance to, to tell my story. and. Thank you so much for the opportunity tonight and I'm looking forward to answering questions and to, um, you know, working with everybody moving forward. Great. Oh, thank you. Sheila, thank you for getting us and our audience fired up. Yeah. You know, that was really inspiring to hear. Oh, I use the I word, but it was, it's, I think it's inspiring for a lot of people to hear the evolution that your advocacy journey took uh, from just thinking that you were in it alone, navigating the world all on your own. Um, and then thank you to, what a great partner, um, Guide, Dog, Guide Dogs for the Blind. Shout out to GDB. Yeah, using yeah. their network and getting, <laughs> getting their network involved and helping you find your voice to become a powerful advocate. So thank you. Well, you know, I often say the best thing about being blind is having a guide dog and the worst thing is not being able to drive. <laughs> Great. Well, we're going to move on to our final panelist. Um, last but definitely not least, um, we are going to hear from Brooke Jostad. So, Brooke, are you ready? Yeah. Can you guys hear me? We can. All right. Well, I am going to start my, um, my story with a quick anecdote that's going to tie in, hopefully, as well as it does in my head. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I, when I went to get my guide dog um, at CNI, they always tell us the story of the first recipient of a guide dog, um, blind person named Morris Frank, who um, wanted to get his guide dog in Germany. And the only way he could get there was as cargo on a ship. 
And so he actually, in order to get to Europe to get um, his guide dog with Dorothy Eustace training with her, he had to travel and the ship would only allow a blind person to go on it if they were um, in the cargo section. And they were not allowed to just sit with all the other passengers and someone would take him out and walk him around the ship every day once and put him back in his little cell. So a very terrible way to travel overseas, but he did it because he wanted something out of it. So I am going to tell my story. So I started at a new company um, called Specialty Counseling in September. Um, and during my interview, they were pretty skeptical about hiring me. They said, you know, um, how do you use a computer? Do you get around? Do you eat? You know, all the nice ignorant questions that are initially asked. And I worked hard to prove myself and tell them that I have technology that would help with the electronic health record and assistive technology and that I work hard to get things done. Long story short, I convinced them to hire me or they decided to, I don't know which one. And um, I very confidently went into my first day was with all my NVDA and JAWS and everything I had available to me to find that the electronic health record was not only, I, I expected it to be mostly inaccessible. I didn't necessarily expect it to be completely inaccessible to the point where my screen reader doesn't read at all. Um, so I was very nervous. This was a new boss four days into my new job, three days in. And I had to tell him, I can't use any part of everything that you use except email. <laughs> so that was not, I was pretty nervous about having that conversation, yeah. rightfully. Um, but I was prepared to brainstorm solutions. So I remember being in my boss's car, we were going to the next training and I told him and he said, so this basically just means, you know, um, you can't sign off on them, right? And I said, no, um, it means I can't do anything on it. I can't write the notes on it. I can't put it on any part of it. What I can do is do all the information, get all the information to someone that can then put it on it. But I cannot independently put it on this electronic health record. Um, so that was a vulnerable conversation. His response was, well, among other things, we might just have you work more hours to kind of make up for the workload that you are going to give us. Um, so that was one of many responses. He and I now have a very collaborative relationship. So before you get too mad at my employer, I'm still <laughs> a happy ending. Um, <laughs> so I called Claire because, you know, that's a theme here. We call Claire and we don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, this, this company is not following the ADA. They're not following the law. And after she did some research, she broke it to me that the company's act, the electronic health record company is actually exempt from the ADA law because they are an independent electronic health record system and employers are held responsible for accommodations, not their software company. So I couldn't blame the software company without, with very many teeth. I couldn't really, you know, self-righteously sue them and win a bunch of money and fix it that way. <laughs> so 
now that that bubble was burst, I decided to, I had a, I had a choice. I could try to fight the company um, who was, who was at that point saying that if we pay them a bunch of money, they'll make it accessible. I could fight that and probably lose my job pretty quickly because my employer, if I tried to tell them not to pay any of it and never have it accessible and maybe get somewhere, or I could take care of myself first and play by their rules with the hope that I could eventually fight the system. So that's what I chose to do um, to the disapproval of many blind people actually who have said, you know, you shouldn't have bowed down to what they were requiring. But humans are inherently selfish creatures, I suppose. <laughs> so I um, advocated with my place of employment. They took up two thirds of the cost to that clinic tracker, which is the name of the company, was was saying they needed in order to make their product halfway accessible. And I would really say a fifth of the way accessible, honestly, um, because they use Windows Narrator and it's a whole ordeal. Um, so they paid two thirds of it and I'm currently advocating for Division of Voc Rehab to pay the final third to make every part that I need accessible. Um, accessible is in air quotes here. Um, it does take me a while to use the products. It's a lot of me making side note notes on boxes that don't read and memorizing the order of edit boxes that don't read and things like that. But I can do most of it at this point, except for using my scheduler, which is what I'm having the trying to get the division of Oak Rehab to pay for. Um, I don't feel great about paying this company to, to make things accessible. I don't like doing it. Um, and my goal is after I'm secure in all of the things I need to do, I'm going to tackle this loophole in the ADA that holds, that exempts outside, assistive, uh, outside technology companies from the ADA. But I'm not there yet. I'm riding the ship across the ocean as cargo. And maybe once I get there, I can advocate so that other people don't have to do that. Um, so Voc Rehab, Division of Voc Rehab has been pretty much flat out refusing to pay due to the fact that they think the software should do it anyway and no one should have to pay them, which I agree, but that's not where we are right now. And so Claire is helping me. She um, wrote a letter um, detailing why this company is exempt from the ADA currently and therefore why um, I, I as, a, as a client of Voc Rehab need this support to maintain employment in collaboration with my employer which has agreed to who, who has already paid two-thirds of the cost. Um, and this has also involved a lot of back and forth with the assistive technology, not assistive technology, the opposite, the non-assistive <laughs> technology. <laughs> um, lots of meetings, lots of talking them down. I've, I've really negotiated the cost signif significantly lower than it was going to be, just with a lot of back and forth and um, challenging their claims of how long something will take, et cetera. So, it's been a three-pronged process, really, working with my employer, working with Voc Rehab, and working with the company to try to get what needs to be done 
completed and I'm $800 short right now of a $2,500 project. Once that gets done and once I no longer need outside support accessing the software, um, which again is a very, very slow process. It's not, I don't want it to, to make it sound like it's fully accessible, but it's doable. Then I can tackle the ADA loophole itself. But that is the route I chose to go. Um, whether it's admirable or not, it's what I chose to do so that I could maintain employment and maintain my um, collaboration with my employer and try to make things as, as painless for my employer as possible because they're a small company who um, really does some great work and I want to be a part of it. So that is my story and I don't have anything else to say about it. Thank you so much, Brooke. I have been so impressed with how Brooke has been handling this over the past almost year, which is, you know, having to constantly pound the pavement, so to speak. So I thank you for sharing your story, Brooke. It's, it's great. So yeah, and thank you for your your persistence and your tenacity. Yeah. As as you work through this situation, as and as Claire offers what support that we're able to. Great. Well, um, if you have any questions for uh, the four panelists, feel free to keep emailing those in at questions at acb.org. And I think we have about, mm, let's see if I can do math, maybe 12 minutes for questions. And I do have some. Awesome. All right. My first couple of questions are for the individual presenters. And Deb from Oregon had a question for, um, the panelists about using media involvement. She said she used the threat and was ready to follow through with it for media involvement. She basically wanted to know, she sent this question after Rebecca's presentation. So she basically wanted to know why Jim and Rebecca opted not to use media. Um, I'll just give a quick answer for me. Um, I don't feel like we were at that point yet. I mean, as I mentioned, we were still, we're still in our infancy in this journey, um, you know, a few months in and still like, you know, trying to figure out who the players are and why things are or are not happening. So, um, you know, for me, I, that's why I chose not to, I think there can definitely be advantages, um, in doing that, but then, you know, you also have to weigh, you know, the idea of, you know, okay, so how is this going to look, you know, in the community or you know we have to see these people every day or whatever so there are lots of i think things to to take into considerations i guess before you before you go that route but for me personally um i just feel like it's a little bit too early and i'm also one thing i'm neglected to mention is i'm also trying to do some coalition building with um a few other blind parents i know in the area as well um to gauge their experiences and to try to come together as a single group. So we're as a unified front. So I don't think we're there yet. <clears throat> we have used some media um, since we filed the lawsuit. Prior to filing the lawsuit, it's my belief that media wouldn't have done anything to move these people. It's political. It's extremely political and gotten more political by the day. Mm. Um, and I just don't think that that media was the answer in this instance. Uh, I think there are a lot of places where media is very helpful. Um, we had an excellent article written 
uh, about a month ago, but it didn't generate a single real response. Quickly, Sheila, have you used media in any of your advocacy campaigns? Oh, yes. <laughs> um, I always believe starting small, starting by talking nicely to the people you're having the issue with, um, but when it gets to be big and you're still not moving mountains, I, I had, uh, yes, um, I have written letters to the editor to help people see what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. Um, I'm good friends with a, a lot of the television media in Kansas City. That's awesome. Um, one of the, every year I have these snow plowing issues and, and I um, am pretty famous for at least once a year having the media film me climbing across huge snow banks. <laughs> try to get some attention and try to, yeah, no, and in some more serious situations as well, yes. But only escalating to when it's time as Jim and Rebecca so correctly said. Great. Next question, Janet. I, now some, now these, oh, and I do have a question for Jim also. Regina asked you to repeat those principles that you started out with and or to email them so we could put them up on a website as a handout for advocacy because she really thought those principles that you started your presentation out with were wonderful. Do we have you, Jim? So maybe you'd like to send those out and we can Yeah, Jim, we'd be happy to share those over the ACB list um, yep. or even once this session is posted or archived as a podcast. So we'll get yep. those from Jim and share them with us. All everyone. right. Now, the other questions that I have are just pretty general questions, and I'm just giving these out in no particular order. So people, if I've missed your question, I'm sorry. I'm trying to get to all of them, but um, I had a question about money readers, and what this person asked is if the increase in money readers is discouraging accessible currency. I would say not, because the, the court was clear that the federal government has to make currency accessible. Um, they were, the federal government and the Bureau of Engraving and Printing was offering a, a money reader as an interim fix, and for those who have smartphones, there are currency readers uh, available for use from a smartphone, but many people don't have a smartphone and we shouldn't have to carry around a, a separate device just to know what type of currency we have in our hand. So I was just skiing in Canada last winter and I've been to Norway a few times recently. There's nothing more satisfying than reaching into your wallet and being able to pull out money and just feel it and hand it over like anybody else. No, we have to get that. Yeah. Next question, and this is, this is a really good question. Um, what is a civil right, and what happens once it has been passed? When, when, and, um, and what is a fair view of what it does and does not guarantee? And what positive ways can we work, uh, work towards inclusion and equality for all? Wow, deep question. I know. Big question. <laughs> that's a big question. How much time you got? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's a question we want to... That's the last question. <laughs> Just to put a plug in, I think that might be a really cool question for us to do a community for call a community on sometime. Call. Should we hold off on that one? Yeah. Or a podcast. Yeah, yeah our podcast. Or, yep. yeah. Uh, yeah, so let's... Okay. Yeah. All right. 
Anisio from Florida wants to know about Medicare coverage of low vision devices. What's going oh. on with that? Well, that is, so let's talk about that in, in the sense of advocacy and the work that we've been doing. Uh, so we've had legislation introduced in Congress. This has been an ACB legislative imperative for quite some time. We've been educating our members and our members have been communicating this issue to Capitol Hill. Um, Bill still hasn't moved. We haven't gotten any traction on it. So why is that? What else can we do to raise the profile of this issue? Well, we can build a coalition and we can network with other organizations. And that's what we're doing now with the ITEM Coalition, uh, which is a coalition of national organizations that work to advance policies through Medicare and Medicaid services. And some of our partners in this coalition that we're working with on low vision devices include several folks who you've heard from earlier this week, uh, whether that's AER, um, with the interim executive director of first vice president for the ACB, Mark Reichert. It's the, the Vision Serve Alliance who participated in an event. Lee Nasahi, their CEO and president, participated in a panel with the Alliance for Aging and Vision Loss and Rehabilitations Task Force earlier this week, as well as low vision device manufacturers like Vispero and Humanware. So we already have some legislation introduced, but we're also working to build a coalition of doctors, organizations, trade associations, device manufacturers, and of course, ACB members, people who are blind and visually impaired who could really benefit from having these devices. And within this coalition, we're trying to take a, a broader look at this issue to see whether the current legislation we have that isn't going anywhere, whether that's the right approach or if we need to take a different approach. And also what we can do through the executive branch and the regulatory agencies. You know, is there a way to communicate directly with the centers for Medicare and Medicaid services to get low, low vision devices covered? So that's where we stand now with the low vision devices bill, HR 4129. If you all listening want to take uh, individual advocacy on that bill, we have information available on the ACB website and you can either email or call your elected officials and ask them to co-sponsor the bill if they're not a co-sponsor already. And if they are a co-sponsor, just let them know how much that means to you and what a great job it is for them to support that initiative. I think we have a time for one more quick question, Janet. Oh boy. And for all of you whose questions I have not gotten to, what I'm going to do is send them to the particular people or the general questions I'll send to Claire and Clark and they'll get, they'll get back to you, right? Of course. Thanks, I Janet. Um, my last question is about student advocacy and some suggestions on how students can advocate for themselves and the feeling that the departments of the schools, the Department of Education is kind of protected and if people file advocacy claims or um, discrimination claims, they really aren't taken seriously. Mm. Any suggestions for students? 
That's a good question. Um, I'd love to hear more about the specific situation. So you can always email us. But I think that that gets back to kind of what we've heard from all of our speakers and what Clark and I talked about, how there's definitely not a one size fits all. Um, so the, the facts of the case are really important to hear. Um, but sometimes you kind of start in one place and try it. And if that doesn't work, try a different approach. Um, so, you know, you might, you might start by, you know, using media or that kind of thing. Although I generally, that's not the first choice. Um, but you know, that could be one approach. Whereas, you know, maybe another approach could be, you know, going through the system in the school or that kind of thing. So it's hard to, to say without knowing all the specific details, but I have often found, and I think all of our presenters have really stressed that um, there's not a one size fits all and there's not a perfect you know, A to B to C, it's, it's more of a zigzaggy kind of advocacy trail. And so it's, it's trying one thing and when that doesn't work, trying another thing. Um, so I, I wish I could say it was a smooth road, but it tends not to be. And this isn't the first time that during the conference and convention that student advocacy has come up. Claire, do you want to talk a little bit about the event that you participated in last night? Yeah, um, so I had the great um, fortunate opportunity to speak with the ACB students affiliate at their business meeting last night. And we talked about how students can get involved because we want you guys to be involved with advocacy um, directly for student issues, of course, um, but also for all issues, you know, we want you guys to get involved. Um, so keep an eye out for what we're putting out on the um, advocacy update on our podcast through our various forms of social media and those kinds of things because we want students to be involved. You guys are literally our future and we want your participation and help. Um, and then again, if you have student related issues, reach out to us at advocacy at acb.org. And I think that comes close to the end. We had such great conversation. Um, we wanted to do a few hypothetical scenarios, but we're very limited on time. So I think, should I maybe read one or two of them? We wanted to have audience participation, but I don't think we're going to have enough time or bandwidth to do that. So perhaps we'll just read a few hypothetical scenarios and Clark and I can kind of talk about some ideas and generate some thought. Does that sound good, Clark? Sounds good. Okay, so I'm going to just read a few hypos and Clark and I can banter back and forth on some ideas. And again, the, the point is that there's never one right answer. You can approach it from so many different angles. So the first typo we came up with is you live in a, uh, you live in a small state that's predominantly rural. And as a result, there's limited public transportation options. Persons who are blind or visually impaired have few public transportation options. You and a group of other blind individuals want to advocate for more transit services. What do you do? What do you do, Clark? Well, I go back to the archived uh, podcast from this convention, and I find the remarks of Connie Sims from South Dakota. Nice. <laughs> because she is a rural transportation expert. And that's, that's who I would talk to. to be, <laughs> she doesn't know I'm plugging her right now. So when her <laughs> phone starts blowing up and email we love you, gets Connie. out of control, um, I may have a reckoning. But yeah, I would seek out the experts. And I know from the transportation forum that we have a lot of experts um, here within ACB, whether that's Sh Sheila Styron or Connie Sims or Ron Brooks. Exactly. 
Yeah, I think that's a great plug to show that as we've talked a lot about tonight in coalition building, we have some great resources right here in ACB. So um, use them. That's what we're here for. So yeah. um, and start a conversation with your local transit uh, agencies and departments as well. Let them make sure they know of your concerns and the issues that you're facing. Exactly. Okay, I'll read one more. We, we literally have a couple mm -hmm. minutes left. I'll read one more and then we'll close up. Um, so the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is accelerating the availability of vote by mail or not a non-excuse voting ballots. Your state has closed most in-person polling places um, and have mailed out paper ballots to all voters, including those who are blind or visually impaired. Your state does not offer an accessible remote or absentee voting option. What do you do? Yeah, and this is a big, big issue right now um, in the national office. What are you talking about? Super easy. <laughs> right. In the national office, we've spoken with ACB members and affiliates from more than 20 states working on this issue, including um, Jim down there in Florida. Mm -hmm. And as Jim has said, this has also become a political issue as well. Um, the first thing I would do is I would go to acb.org slash voting. Um, there's some great information there uh, that Claire Stanley especially helped pull together that outlines the federal laws pertaining to disabilities rights and voting, as well as resources, um, especially state and local resources available through several of those links to find out more about the voting process for your local jurisdiction, as well as uh, how you can stay safe and what your rights are during vo voting during the current COVID-19 pandemic. Um, as well as liaison with your state affiliate, because chances are you're not the only one that has this concern. Um, Claire and I, even this week during the convention, are talking with folks from ACB of Virginia, and we're not just talking with one person. It's a whole, whole cadre of folks who have yes. the same concern and are working together collaboratively to try to address this issue. And not only are we working collaboratively, collaborat I can't speak. Spit it Say out. that word, Claire. Collaboratively. Thank you. See, You're welcome. This is why she gets paid the big bucks. <laughs> um, not only collaboratively within ACB, but also reaching out to NFB because they have the same concerns as well as the protection and advocacy agencies and other uh, Centers disability, for Independent Living. Yep, yeah. Mm -hmm. And other disability rights organizations. I think just one last thing to add to that one too is that uh, COVID-19 has really, you know, made things completely different as it concerns absentee voting. It's something we've been working on for years, but this has really accelerated the need. So I just wanted to use that as an example is that sometimes unexpected things happen mm -hmm. that can totally do a 180 on the advocacy work you're doing. Take advantage of those. Things and change and you can use them. Yes. And like other issues, this is one that is prime for a flexible and adaptable approach. So in a state like West Virginia, we were able to work together to have legislation passed. The Bay State Council of the Blind in Massachusetts has also been working to pass legislation. But in other states like Idaho, we've filed ADA complaints. And the Department of Justice. Yep, Jim down in Florida has, um, and Florida Council has filed a lawsuit similar to what we've had to do in New York and what has also been done in Pennsylvania. 
and shout out to Michigan. Kay. Shout out to Carrie Chapman in Iowa. They've been doing a lot of direct advocacy with the Secretary of State's office. Mm -hmm. So lots of different angles you can take. Exactly. And Claire Stanley even participated in a, a hearing or a meeting in the District of Columbia to talk about the accessibility of remote absentee voting. Great. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with us. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, advocacy is huge. It's an issue we are forever talking about here at ACB. So again, if you have any issues you'd like to talk to us about, email us at advocacy at acb.org. And Claire, let me just give what the closing code. Oh, yep. The closing code for continuing education is 24043. 24043. Thank you, Janet, and thank you to all our panelists, as well as Rick Morin and the folks from ACB Radio. And Claire, let's wrap it up like we do all of the Advocacy Bye. Update podcasts. Keep, Keep advocating. advocating.